and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with news that a birth control pill, Opil, that has been on the market for 50 years, will now be available early next year over-the-counter without a prescription. Joining us to discuss what this means for young women, teenagers and those who can't afford doctors or have time to go to the doctor to get a prescription is Michelle Bratcher-Goodwin, the O'Neill Professor of Constitutional Law and Global Health Policy and co-faculty director of the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown University. She's the host of the popular podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine and is the author of a number of books, most recently Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Then we'll look into today's most brazen electoral coup attempt by Guatemala's crooked president, Giamate, his crooked attorney general, Consuelo Porras, and his crooked chief prosecutor, Rafael Curachiche, which has led to the top vote-getter in the presidential election to suspend her campaign. Joining us is Joe Marie Burt, the president of the Latin American Studies Association, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. She writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala and has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights and transitional justice in Latin America. Then finally, after the insane attacks on the Republican head of the FBI at yesterday's clown show by Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee in defense of Trump's lawlessness, we'll assess what has happened to the party of law and order. Joining us is a recovered Republican, Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at The Nation, The Party of Pollution, Disease, and Death, When Republicans Tell You Who They Are, Believe Them, In the Name of Imaginary Freedom, Republicans are willing to let many people die. In fact, they're proud of it. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Michelle Bratcher-Goodwin, who is the O'Neill Professor of Constitutional Law and Global Health Policy and the co-faculty director of the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown University. She's the host of the popular podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine and is the author of a number of books, most recently Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michelle Goodwin. Thank you very much for inviting me to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michelle. And today we're learning that the FDA have now approved the medication called Opil, uh, which is produced by a, a Irish company in Dublin called Perigo. It has actually been on the market for 50 years and it's been proven to be very effective and safe, but it's now going to be available over the counter. 
possibly as early as early next year. So what I'm seeing in terms of the coverage uh, of this is that this is a huge step forward in terms of making birth control available, particularly to young women. How do you see it, Michelle? It is a huge step forward for medical access in the United States. There are already 100 countries where birth control methods such as this are available over the counter that are effective and safe, the birth control pill. Uh, this has been on the market for the last 50 years, but hidden behind the barriers of not being over the counter. So this provides greater access. Uh, and greater ability, and it also reduces the stigma of having access to birth control. It is worth noting that in recent years, when there have been doctors at universities and otherwise that have been uh, alleged to have committed sexual assaults against women, in some of those cases, it's been where these young women on college campuses or athletes have had to go to doctors and be examined in order to receive birth control, something that should be available over the market, uh, over the counter in the domestic markets in the United States. And this new medication, Opil, apparently it's, it's progesterone only, right? There's no estrogen. That's right. And the only possible side effects of progesterone is it can't be prescribed to somebody with breast cancer. But you know, right. it's not likely to affect young women, right? That's absolutely right. So it is unlikely that this form of birth control would be have negative indications for young women who would take it because of the relatively low risk of breast cancer as we know, in, uh, in young women. So this is thought to be safe and effective. And it's not as if young women aren't seeking birth control methods that are over the counter. It's those birth control methods are less efficacious. They include things like uh, condoms, which are available over the counter, but are far less effective than this pill. And that's important to know for those people who would think, well, this is just the first time absolutely in the United States that there would be contraceptive um, contraceptives made available over the counter. They have been over the counter for some time, but they've been less effective than this product, which has been in the marketplace for over 50 years. And it's 92.5% effective, right? That's absolutely right. It's nearly 93% effective in preventing pregnancy with typical use. It's understood that people are not always as vigilant as they should be with the daily regimen of taking uh, the pill, but with its typical use, it's uh, estimated to be 93% effective in preventing pregnancy. So this pill is to be taken once a day at the same time, right? And if you do, if you follow that re regime, it's much more likely to be effective. That's absolutely right. That's, that's absolutely right. And as you noted, you know, O-pill is considered the mini pill uh, because of its only one hormone, the progestin. Um, and this is also in contrast to other kinds of birth control that are even in the pill form. So it's thought to be effective 
safe and now is making it more accessible in the United States. It means that the United States can join a hundred other countries where birth control is less stigmatized, more available and accessible over the counter. So what do we know about the, the cost? Because the Irish company, Perigo, have not stated what it's going to cost, but they've said that they're going to try and make it uh, available in, inexpensively, particularly knowing that a lot of young women and students, etc., will be their customers. Well, this is a very good question because the Affordable Care Act required that um, birth control, such as the birth control pill, must be covered under insurance programs. Now, it didn't extend to over-the-counter contraception, so that raises a question about a gap here. And even though three-quarters of Americans really support birth control being available over-the-counter, that doesn't mean that it will be accessible to all of those individuals and communities of people that tend to be uh, more economically vulnerable. It's not clear yet what the cost will be of this over-the-counter medication. Uh, And it's also not clear whether states will take action to require that insurance providers in their state provide not only coverage for over-the-counter prescription contraception, as well as that which is not over-the-counter, that remains yet to be seen. But recently, President Biden issued an executive order telling the federal government uh, that it should take steps towards requiring insurers to cover over-the-counter birth control, and Senate Democrats have reintroduced legislation to that effect. So when do you think that will come into play and and young women will be covered? Well, this also is it's hard to know. Right now, we're in a country that is deeply divided with regard to, well, let me put it this way. It's not so much the country is divided with regard to access to reproductive health care. It is that male-dominant legislator, legislatures, particularly in the American South, have shown quite a resistance to reproductive health care access, whether that is contraception, whether that happens to be Uh, matters of abortion. So in states that have far more liberal policies, then one can imagine that this will be taking place soon. In states that have become battlegrounds for reproductive autonomy, that's where we're really in crosshairs. And that's where these questions are far more difficult. But that's also where the poorest of Americans live and where the greatest lack of access happens to be. Well, you have on the Supreme Court, though, of course, just having overturned the Constitution right for bodily autonomy for women in the Dobbs decision. In that decision, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, wrote a separate opinion suggesting that they should move also against contraception and even consensual sex. So what's your sense of what's happened now to this anti-abortion movement? They're trying to play down the consequences, aren't they? Aren't the Republicans starting to feel a backlash? Well, that's true that there has been a tremendous backlash that's taken place. And this is why it's really important to understand that 
where there has been a resistance to reproductive autonomy and freedom, it's not been amongst Americans and American Republicans. It has largely been amongst Republican-controlled Southern um, states. It's not exclusive, but that is dominantly where it happens to be. And it's worth noting how distinct this is from um, the politics of reproductive uh, health in the United States. Roe v. Wade itself was a seven to two opinion. Five of the seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackmun, who wrote the opinion in Roe v. Wade, was put on the court by President Richard Nixon. So what we see today is a kind of resistance and backlash that's not part of the Republican tradition in the United States. It actually comes from something that is um, quite contrary to that, which is why we saw in the midterm elections in places um, that might have been presumed to be far more conservative on questions regarding abortion, that um, constitutional amendments all favored keeping abortion legal in the United States, whether that was defeating ballot measures in a state like Kentucky or whether it was then in states like, you know, Montana, uh, where protecting um, abortion rights um, persisted by also denying that to be in a state's constitution. So, you know, it is true that in the United States right now, there is a deep political division on these questions. But what has been very clear is that Americans have come forward uh, to articulate the importance of bodily autonomy. And part of that is the horrific cases that one is seeing in the backdrop of the Dobbs decision, a 10-year-old girl having to flee one state to get to another in order for that pregnancy to be terminated after she was the victim of horrific rapes. Um, or whether in Texas, a group of women now suing the state because these were women whose lives nearly came to an end because they needed to manage miscarriages, and miscarriages occur in about 15 to 20% of pregnancies. They just simply do, but Texas has made it very difficult for doctors to provide the medical care necessary when there has been a naturally occurring miscarriage. Uh, this has placed the lives of women in grave dangers. In the state of Wisconsin, there have been cases of women bleeding multiple days, being near death before their doctors felt that they could legally intervene in those cases. And one of the issues that's come up is that involving doctors of feeling handcuffed by these laws, feeling unable to provide the medical care that they ethically believe is necessary but for fear of criminal punishment, which in Texas could be up to 99 years incarceration or civilly $100,000 in fines. And so doctors are in a very vulnerable position. And of course, that should never overshadow exactly what is happening to girls and women in the United States, where it has become uh, quite a disastrous background in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And today, 14 states have abortion bans that do not offer any exceptions for cases of rape and incest. That's, that's right. And in those states, that means that individuals would need to leave those states in order to get the medical care that they need. Now, this is a matter of human dignity for anybody. So often people will say, well, so long as someone's wealthy, it's not something they have to worry about. Well, the truth of it is that wealth will get you to New York and California and other states. There's still something that is pernicious in an individual's health care being tethered to having to go out of town. 
Um, and given the fact that there are states that are now rumbling and making rumbles about tracking people who go out of state, uh, trying to track down and possibly criminally prosecute doctors who are in other states that provide uh, uh, pregnancy terminations to people who are residents of their state. This all complicates it even further. And of course, for individuals who are economically vulnerable, for people who may be students, for children who become raped and pregnant, which is a reality in the United States, that it seems that the anti-abortion laws um, have failed to appropriately grapple with, or for those people who are part of the working poor, of which the United States has a significant population of the working poor. For those individuals, this health care option um, is significantly out of reach because it means having to travel, train fare, plane fare, or gas to get out of state. It means that if you have children, and most individuals who terminate pregnancies are mothers, which means finding childcare for the children. It means having to source the, get the resources to be able to afford a hotel stay. I mean, all of these resources coming up with that while in the meantime, you're trying to pay rent or mortgage and trying to keep the lights on and trying to get your telephone on. All of these different things mean a significant economic burden. Now, what we also have to pay attention to and that I've mentioned I, is the natural occurrence of miscarriage. But in the United States, it leaves all industrialized nations in maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, ranking around 55th in the world. For so many people then, this is not just a matter of what is an elective option. This can be life and death. And the United States Supreme Court has recognized that in a 2016 Supreme Court case called Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, which the Supreme Court acknowledged that a woman in the United States is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. So then we have to think about what that means in the highly restrictive states where an abortion is out of reach, where empirically we know that that can be a life or death circumstance for the women and girls in those states. Well, but there's an Orwellian law that was just passed in April in Idaho by the Idaho State Legislature requiring any person under 18 to get permission from a parent or guardian before traveling out of state to have an abortion. And any person who violates the law could be charged with abortion trafficking. So that sort of raises this Orwellian specter that uh, are you going to have sort of these so-called Christian vigilantes at, at Greyhound bus stations checking the papers? I mean, show me your papers. Uh, that harkens to the Gestapo. I mean, what's happening to America? The decline in democracy in the United States has been noted apart from abortion politics, but abortion politics are a lens through which we can see the dismantling of democracy in the United States. Um, and this conversation then has to be linked with efforts to suppress voting that's taking place in the United States, which is coinciding within the states uh, where there is significant attention to ban abortion. You see gerrymandering taking place, uh, trying to limit access to the ballot, not only for communities that have traditionally been targeted, such as African-Americans, but also for other communities, such as students, making it very difficult for students to be able to have access to vote 
on their college campuses. And altogether, within this kind of atmosphere that also seeks to ban literature that might address sexuality, that might address race, that might address matters of equality and liberation, uh, librarians being told that they cannot help individuals who come in uh, search terms like abortion. But beyond that, book bans, book burning, book censorship in the United States is all a part of the conversation of what is happening right now. And it can't be understood in any other way than to challenge fundamental notions about what it means to protect our Constitution um, and to adhere to our Constitution. And so within the face of the anti-abortion movement, there are other constitutional rights that become implicated. And that includes the right to free speech, the right to broad religious liberties, rather than uh, the uh, hurting or the taking away of the subordinating individual's rights because of one single religious identity gaining a foothold in control of the American political landscape. So these are part of the bevy of questions that need to be addressed in the United States. I mean, historically, there was great respect for the separation of church and state. Part of what allowed the United States to be able to flourish, although against the backdrop of slavery, uh, Jim Crow, um, discrimination against indigenous populations, against that backdrop was the sense that in order to build a just society, one needed to separate church and state. And what you see, given the Supreme Court that constantly constitutes that of the United States, that there is a blurring of the lines uh, with that. And in that blurring of the lines, what it has meant is that a certain Christian orthodoxy um, has taken hold in certain states and in certain states' legislatures where that used to be policed that is to say where a Supreme Court could be a final check against abuses, um, that Supreme Court now, some may say, is complicit in the kinds of abuses that were not uncommon. And that is important to know, too, in some of the very states where there has been anti-abortion lawmaking are states that have had a long history of lawmaking that is in conflict with fundamental principles of the United States Constitution. So if you think about a state like Mississippi, which was the state that challenged the United States Supreme Court to end Roe, well, in that state, it was only in 2013 that they ratified the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment was the amendment that abolished slavery in 1865. And so it's not a surprise that one can draw a Venn diagram on the states that practice the horrific, uh, practice this horrific trade of slavery and then persisted through Jim Crow happen to be the same states that are enacting abortion bans to limit uh, women's bodily autonomy because bodily autonomy became a question centuries ago and it still is a question now in those states. Right, and then just in closing, of course, these states and these white men in these legislatures, they are all about the right to life when it comes to 
abortion, but not when it comes to allowing military assault weapons into the hands of mass murderers uh, conducting massacres in schools, churches, malls, and movie theaters. So, so much for a right to life. I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for inviting me on. And again, I've been speaking with Michelle Goodwin, who is the O'Neill Professor of Constitutional Law and Global Health Policy and the co-faculty director of the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown University. She's the host of the popular podcast on the issues with, with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine and is the author of a number of books, most recently Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking in today's most brazen electoral attempt by Guatemala's crooked president, his attorney general, and his chief prosecutor, which has led to the top vote-getter in the presidential election to suspend her campaign. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Joe Marie Burt, president of the Latin American Studies Association, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America, and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. She writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala and has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Marie Burt. Hi, Ian. Nice to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And what's happening now in Guatemala is just so amazingly brazen. Uh, it's almost like a caricature of the worst kind of banana republic behavior by some tin-pot dictator. You've got the outgoing president, who is a crook, and his attorney general, who is also a crook, and the top prosecutor, who is also a crook, have disqualified the anti-corruption crusader who came in second in the first runoffs of the presidential elections to replace Giamatti's regime. And now the conservative woman who came in first in the runoffs, she's joining in solidarity uh, with the guy that they just tried to disqualify, Sandra Torres. And she said in a statement today, we want to demonstrate our solidarity with the voters of the Seed Party. That's the party that just got disqualified. Uh, and also with those who came out to vote. As a candidate, I want to compete under equal conditions. So what's happening, Germany? Is this some kind of split within the ultra-conservative elite in Guatemala? Well, you, you've done a pretty good dis job of describing the absolute chaos that Guatemala has been experiencing since the June 25 elections. We're talking two and a half weeks since the elections actually took place. It took that long for the elections authority to announce that indeed Sandra Torres and Bernardo Arevalo of the Semilla or, or Seed Party would proceed to the second round vote on August 20th. Um, and literally 20 minutes prior to that announcement, 
um, the head of the anti-corruption unit or the poorly named anti-corruption unit in the attorney general's office announced that he was, as you said, uh, essentially shutting down uh, the seed or Semilla party, uh, basically claiming that one individual uh, denounced ha- that his signature had been falsified when the party registered as a party some four years ago. So it's clearly an effort to simply wipe off, uh, wipe Semilla away as a can- as a candidate and as an opposition movement in an attempt to guarantee that you know some. Uh, one of the several conservative political candidates uh, wins the elections. Um, so yeah, I think what I, I think that Bernardo Arevalo himself, who should be the one of the two candidates running in August twentieth, he said it very clearly last night. This is a technical coup d'état. It's still not yet settled. Uh, as we are speaking, the elections authority are holding a press conference. They were given 24 hours by the judge and the attorney general's office to officially suspend uh, the Semilla party. They seem to be, I think they're, the, the, apparently they were going, they're going to reject this move, but uh, it's unclear what's going to happen uh, because then you have sort of a constitutional crisis, right? So it's extremely chaotic. And, and the other interesting thing, it's not just that you have Sandra Torres, Bernardo Arevalo's uh, p- potential opponent in the second round vote, calling for the results to be respected in the second round elections to take place as scheduled. You have everyone from the embassy of the United States, the head of the Western Hemisphere Affairs in the State Department to the the European Union, to the Organization of American States, several Latin American governments, even some conservative business associations are now openly stating that the election results should be officialized and the popular will should be respected and the August 22nd round votes should be held. So basically what we have is a small group of People in power, including Gemate, the president, his attorney general, Consuelo Porras, and uh, uh, Rafael Curuchichi, who is the head of the anti-corruption unit. He's the one who yesterday ordered the cancellation of the Semilla party. They're kind of the hub around which this attempt to essentially ignore the results of the elections centers, right? And a whole range of allies of this very corrupt cabal are now abandoning ship. I think they see the writing on the wall. They see that the international community is, in fact, paying attention to what's happening. And they are all weighing in on the side of recognizing the election results. And, and that said, um, we still have – if this were to happen and we were to have second-round votes, we still have a lot of monkey business that could occur between now and August 20th. Um, So it doesn't mean that Guatemala is out of the water if they allow these elections to move forward. Um, And it's really quite remarkable, given that the the National Elections Tribunal, it's received a lot of criticism in the the, uh, uh, months coming up to these elections because they uh, prevented three 
leading candidates from participating under completely spurious arguments. And so through their, you know, technical uh, rulings have shaped the playing field. And honestly, the outcome we see today, I think, is in part a result of that. People in Guatemala, um, they know what it's like to live in a country where there is a robust anti-corruption effort between 2010 and 2019 with the uh, International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala active in the country, that UN body that was assisting the attorney general's office and the, and the judiciary to really combat corruption and organized crime and other criminal activities. And I think after four years of this utter disaster of a government, that's concentrated power, persecuted judges, persecuted prosecutors, persecuted journalists. People are tired. And, and it's, it's, I think the results were a little surprising. I do think it's also important to highlight that. I was actually in, in a meeting with a series of colleagues working on Guatemala just after the election results came out. And Everyone, I think, was glum about the results. We, Our assumption was that one of the several right-wing candidates very closely connected to these different corrupt elites were going to win the top two positions, and one or the other would would uh, run for uh, the president, would win the presidency in the second round, and there was little hope of changing uh, the situation in Guatemala. So the, the surprise victory of Bernardo Arevalo uh, of the Semilla party, which is also important to know it's a fairly new party. It emerged in the context of the mass citizen protests against government corruption in 2015 that led to the demission and arrest of then-sitting President Otto Perez Molina. I mean, it really created a, a, a light, a ray of hope in Guatemala that somehow um, democratic progressive forces could wrest control from this cabal of very authoritarian, very corrupt elites, um, military, uh, and other sectors, and 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 bring the country back to where it was several years ago, back to an effort to really rout out uh, the entrenched corruption. But it's a tall order. It's a tall order for this small group on its own to to take on. So the presence of the international community is going to be critical in the next days and weeks. So. What happened today then was that the top vote getter in the first round in the Guatemala's presidential election, Sandra Torres, who's very conservative, she suspended her campaign in solidarity to a, her opponent, yes. who is you know the only clean candidate left or that's not far right and connected to the corrupt elite and the generals and the drug dealers, etc. And because of so many different candidates, mostly right wingers and almost mm-hmm. all right wingers except the seed party. Torres got about 16% of the vote. Aravello, the clean guy, got about 12%. So that's the situation. Now it's frozen. Now you've got, as you mentioned, everybody weighing in, and even Torres herself basically suspending activities, calling their bluff, I guess. I mean, imagine Uh, what was going on this morning. This morning we woke up to seeing the attorney general's off raiding the offices of the National Elections Tribunal raiding the offices of the seed party. We had police uh, police and military all over the streets of Guatemala City surrounding the government palace. It looked and felt a little bit like a coup, right? Um, and so in this context, you start to see, you, you see Sandra Torres' statement and all these, I mean, literally 
dozens and dozens of statements from all different sectors um, rejecting the attorney general's uh, attempt to uh, uh, suspend the seed party, which, you know, is is clearly illegal. Constitutional lawyers across the spectrum have weighed in on this. Um, and they point out that the law of political parties, which has, you know, constitutional level uh, uh, standing, uh, prevents the suspension of a political party once an electoral process is underway. So it's, it's very clear. They cannot do this. And yet they can't figure out any other way of getting rid of Bernardo Arevalo, who they apparently are terrified of. Right. So it's it's just a very traumatic and, and, and frankly, terrifying moment in Guatemala. It's very, the uncertainty is, you know, it's it's heart stopping, really. But, but haven't the U.S. authorities known that Giamate is a crook? <laughs> I mean, didn't. Uh, yes. Did, Ian, did, of course they know. And I, I have to say it's been rather disheartening over the past uh, couple of years, watching the Biden administration administration shift from an initial, what we believe to be an initial strong effort to, A, address one of our key concerns with Guatemala, which is migration, by a root causes strategy. Um, and we were hoping that they were also going to return the U.S., you know, after the interregnum of the Trump years, where, where they didn't care about the anti-corruption efforts, they allowed uh, the Guatemalan government to shut down the CCG, we were hoping that the U.S. was going to come back to a very strong standing in favor of democracy, rule of law, anti-corruption. And instead, they sort of stood by silently as Jamate uh, moved to consolidate his power because Jamate gave him a few things that they wanted. A uh, hard line on the immigration issue, I think most importantly, but also some other things, you know, remember he, he went to Ukraine and, and expressed his support for, for Zelensky. He's promised, you know, not to break relations with Taiwan. Uh, and he really is one of the few governments that the U.S. has been able to engage in conversations with in Central America. So in terms of geopolitical, the geopolitical scenario, I think the U.S. sees Guatemala as the only government in the region that can actually talk to. So um, rather than playing that strong, you know, anti-corruption role, the U.S. has sort of turned a blind eye. Um, and, you know, we've, I think we've talked about this in prior, in prior interviews. I really do think that at this point that the U this is a, a Frankenstein that the U.S. has helped engender. Uh, and now it's turning on the U.S. And I don't know that the U.S. will be strong enough to control it, but, but I, I certainly hope so. But within Guatemala, within the right-wing elite, who are pretty unsavory, I mean, she, Sandra Torres, seems to be at least taking a reasonable path. So is there a split within the elite? Uh, it seems that there is. And, I mean, Sandra Torres, it's important to sort of her background is important. She was a former first lady. She was the first lady of uh, Alejandro Colón, was a sort of a center, a centrist government. Uh, one of the few semi-decent governments Guatemala has had, although not exempt from corruption by any means. Um, and over the years, in her efforts to win the presidency, I think this is her third or maybe fourth time running for the presidency, she's become more and more conservative and more and more entangled with other corrupt actors. And she herself has been, she was in jail for a short time a few years ago, accused of 
I believe that it was illicit campaign contributions. And there there are definitely charges of drug trafficking with uh, members of her party and so forth. So that all said, I think what you're seeing right now in the multiple statements coming out by some of Guatemalan elites is clearly some of them are not willing to cross this line, which is an outright stealing of the election. Uh, because I do think that the U.S. has made pretty clear, although I haven't seen it make any mention of, well, we're going to impose sanctions if these elections aren't clean and fair or something that that's really going to get people's attention. Right. Um, but it seems like there is a kind of a split. It, some, someone actually said to me that there it, it, it appears that some groups within the CACIF, the, the, the main uh, representative body of the Guatemalan business elite, um, are publicly expressing that the election's uh, results should be uh, respected, uh, but others kind of behind the scenes are still, you know, winking and nodding to the Jamate government because they're all terrified of having to face possible uh, investigations in the future, all of them. So, they, and they, they certainly don't want to go back to the glory days of the CCIG. Um, You'll recall there was that incident when the CCIG began investigating Guatemalan business leaders accused who were accused of illegally financing Jimmy Morales's campaign. That was the president before Jamate. Right. Uh, right. So uh, there is a lot of uh, alliances being broken down, shifting, and where it's going to wind up still, I think, remains unclear. Well, Joe Marie Bird, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Joe Marie Burt, who's the president of the Latin American Studies Association, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America, and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. She writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala and has published widely on political violence, state society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the insane attacks on the Republican head of the FBI at yesterday's clown show of Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee in defense of Trump's lawlessness. Yo soy puro guatemalteco y me gusta bailar el sol con las notas de la marimba también baila mi corazón cuando bailo con Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at The Nation, The Party of Pollution, Disease, and Death. When Republicans tell you who they are, believe them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And I'm calling you because you're a recovering Republican. And as you've just written in The Nation... I think I'm fully recovered. (laughs) You're fully recovered, right. But when you, t- when you, you know, you have articles like the one that you have in The Nation, the party of pollution, disease, and death, when Republicans tell you who they are, believe them. In the name of imaginary freedom, Republicans are willing to let many people die. In fact, they're proud of it. How could a party that basically you have described there, I mean, if that, and of course you have to add to that, because I want to talk to you about 
the hearings yesterday before the House Judiciary Committee where a Republican head of the FBI was grilled by these MAGAN lunatics and accused of all kinds of things, and the poor guy had to bite his tongue because he's, he wants appropriations from the, the House. and So he can't really tell them what idiots they are. So it's all, they're playing culture wars. Nothing that they're doing in their control of the House, they haven't done a damn thing except have these stupid show trials with whistleblowers who are going to blow the lid off the Hunter Biden scandal who disappear. I mean, I could go on. It's a joke, this party. Why would anybody vote for them? Uh, well, that's. I'm not a, an expert in abnormal psychology, so I can't answer that question. I can answer the question about the hearings. Um, in a sense, though, Ray... Uh, went about as far as he could when he said, based on his background, where he comes from, the idea that he's persecuting conservatives is insane. He used the word insane. Uh, We have never had a Democrat, uh, a member of the Democratic Party, who was ever an FBI director, ever since J. Edgar Hoover. So that's a pretty remarkable record for the last 85 or 90 years. And what the Republicans are saying just flies in the face of reality unless uh, you realize they simply do not want uh, the law to be enforced against right-wing politicians. Uh, If Trump violated the Espionage Act by taking those classified documents and even sharing them with people, um, then it's, it's not a violation of the Espionage Act. It's political persecution. And on down the line, like the January 6th defendants. Um, but this sort of thing is normal and to be expected of authoritarian parties. Uh, they always appeal to the masses based on law and order. Uh, but once they get into power, then that whole thing is a one-way street. There is basically no law and certainly no order when it comes to death squads and all the rest of it. And, of course, they themselves cannot be held accountable under law. You see this in Putin's Russia, uh, Erdogan's Turkey, uh, everywhere these authoritarian populists have gotten into power. uh, That's the formula. Well, I find it extraordinary. I mean, you have to add to this this as well, that Matt Gaetz was the one who, one of the the MAGA Republicans attacking uh, the head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, in the hearing yesterday, and of course, Gates himself has been accused of trafficking young women. I mean, <laughs> I guess the broader question, though, Mike Lofkin, is why isn't Biden a hundred points ahead of Trump? Because if you go back to Carville's adage, you know, it's the economy, stupid. The economy is in really good shape. Inflation's now down to three percent. 
and every day the economic numbers come out and they're incredibly good news. Why isn't Biden on top of the world now and having huge approval numbers? And why is Trump even competitive? Is it the fault of the Democrats' bad messaging? Well, they, you know, partially they're not very good at producing propaganda to showcase themselves. But you'll find that's basically true all the way back to Harry Truman. If you take all the presidencies from there on and you look at the aggregate record of Democrats versus Republicans, the Democrats have higher growth, lesser unemployment, and even the direction of the deficit uh, is better. Uh, whereas Democrats are always considered the party of big deficits. And it is simply not true, according to the statistics. This is partly a fault of the press. It's partly a fault of economists. Most economists work in the financial world, and their bosses are Republicans. Uh, a lot of these Schools of economics or economics departments in universities are endowed uh, by rich people. And there's a considerable bias in there in economic reporting. And also the Republicans may not be good at the economy, but they're very good at attack propaganda, just as the Democrats are not good at it. And that could, that would apply a across the board. It applies in the whole thing of law and order and accountability as well. So how long do you think they can run on the culture wars without doing anything? I mean, I guess with a divided government, um, with the Democrats controlling the Senate, there's not a lot that gets done at any rate, or at least the crazy stuff gets undone by the Senate. But I just don't understand how they can keep... Well, this nonsense because coming. that's their default their default mode for the last 40 years has been the culture wars but i think it's also their default mode now in particular because they don't want to talk about abortion which is that their thing, really right? hurt them in the midterms it's pretty much delegitimized the supreme court in the eyes of a lot of the american public and it has energized a lot of voters who wouldn't necessarily be enthusiastic. And I think this is a factor that will persist into the 2024 elections. And since they can't talk about that, uh, they're going to talk about the Biden crime family and uh, other fantasies like that. Well, beating uh, up on trans Biden kids, did, is that, is that going to work? That seems to Biden be... Biden did call out, finally, Tommy Tuberville, known universally in the Senate as the dumbest member, for holding up a couple of hundred DOD appointments over abortion, including now the Marine Corps doesn't have a commandant. Now, Biden correctly and finally called him out for his quote-unquote ridiculous stand on this. But I still don't think the Republican or the Democratic Party has quite uh, connected the dots and been able to talk to women 
or for that matter, national security voters, and say, this is what abortion gets you. This guy is holding the national security hostage on abortion. Now, the rest of the public doesn't, or Republican Party doesn't want to talk about it now, now that the Supreme Court has decided, because it's become a little toxic for them. Nevertheless, Tuberville, dumb as he is, is doing this, and they ought to highlight that, the connection between abortion and national security. But what about the connection between Turberville and Donald Trump? He, Donald Trump chose uh, and this Turberville guy. And Turberville and white nationalism, perhaps? And white nationalism, but Trump chose this guy. And this is the kind of people that Trump wants in the Senate, really dumb people that will do exactly. his bidding. So that should be a message, shouldn't it? Yeah, uh, basically as a way to stiff Jeff Sessions, who you thought nobody could get more conservative than him, but he, he looks like uh, Alexander Hamilton or James Madison compared to uh, Tuberville. Right. Well, Liz Cheney, not so long ago, warned that the American people have got to stop you know, voting for idiots. So... How do you raise the question of, the, of America becoming an idiocracy, which I think is a clear and present fact, isn't it? It's really hard to tell. You seem to get enough people voting for them. I don't think it's the majority, but it's certainly enough to be a plurality if the same portion of America is not energized sufficiently to vote. That's why we have uh, religious extremists. Why do they take over school boards? Because those are low-turnout elections, and they're almost always run nonpartisan. So there's no D or R label on the candidates. So they can use deception in order to get elected. And then once they're in on the school board, then suddenly Catcher in the Rye is heaved out of the uh, school library. Well, this explains the Mums for Liberties, right? Absolutely. Their their rise. So then... That's probably a very small group of well-funded activists. There there probably aren't very many of them. No, but they have an outside... This is, this is simply another astroturfed group uh, paid for by right-wing foundation money. Right. From Leonard Leo, the guy that put all these right-wing justices on the Supreme Court. It's the same mechanism with all this dark money as a result of... Right, he's, he's got another, you know, one billion uh, jangling in his pocket based on some bequest he got, so... So does this come down to the simple fact then, Mike Lofkin, that you can divide America into team crazy and team normal? Unfortunately, ultimately, that's what it comes out to. And it comes out to that in, in many countries. The formula for dictatorship and uh, Hitler spelled this out in Mein Kampf in 1924. You divide the population. You find scapegoats. You endlessly keep them 
hopped up about some issue or other. Uh, as Goebbels, uh, his propaganda minister, said, never let the public cool off. Right. Well, Fox News has definitely delivered on all of that. But it's interesting, don't you think, Mike, that now Rupert Murdoch seems to have some buyer's remorse on Trump. He certainly doesn't want Trump re-elected. He seems to have... He wasn't sure about that in the 2020 election, and certainly events since then have turned him even more against it. Uh, For instance, losing three-quarters of a billion dollars in the Dominion suit, and now it looks like uh, that Ray Epps, who was smeared by Fox as a FBI agent, is going to sue Fox again. Uh, So that's another thing they have to thank the MAGA world. Now, what I've heard is that DeSantis was the stalking horse that Murdoch and company wanted to set up, but uh, poor Meatball Ron has not done very well. And now he's looking around for another champion, and this time I guess it might be Glenn Youngkin. Right, Mr. Fleecy Jacket. Right, uh, who comes across well to the suburban moms, apparently, uh, and is at least physically presentable. Yeah, well, good luck selling that to the MAGA crowd. I mean, where is this party anymore? I mean, is it completely MAGA, or is it 80% MAGA, 70% MAGA? I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's certainly a majority, and I, if I had to guess, uh, Trump's going to get the nomination. And uh, do you think that this judge will go along with your delaying tactics? Uh, because it's clear that he, he wants to delay this till after the elections. So uh, I, I really have no insight into what. Right. Well, I just what, thought it'd be going to happen there. I thought it'd be interesting to have him campaign from jail. And how does the Bureau of Prisons work around the fact that you have have a former president in jail along with his Secret Service detail? <laughs> Would they have separate cells for the Secret Service detail? Well, well, we're uh, in new territory now. We, we've set a precedent. Right. <laughs> All right, Mike. Well, I, you know, I just wanted to talk to you about what happened yesterday at the Jim Jordan's latest clown show and trying to figure out how much longer this idiocy can go on without either people getting tired of it or starting to ignore these people. Or I guess the final vain hope is that decent Republicans might emerge and find some backbone, but uh, so far they've they've got as much backbone as Mike Pence. Well, we'll get the definitive answer in November 2024. Okay, well, I thank you for joining us. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mike Lofkin, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article of The Nation, The Party of Pollution, Disease, and Death, When Republicans Tell You Who They Are, Believe Them. In the name of imaginary freedom, Republicans are willing to let many people die. In fact, they're proud of it. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by